Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage today is from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And this is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for a place to gather. Father, for a tabernacle not made with human hands, but Father, uh, a place where we can gather together as the body of Christ, as we see living stones gathered together to our left, to our right. Father, we thank you for your word, Father, that you have spoken, and that we can hear your word, Father, that we have something uh, as instruction to get to know you. Father, as we look at our passage today and we see much of what lies in the past, I pray that we would sit there with the, with attention and answer the questions of what the past demands, specifically as we look to what we would do in the future. Father, we pray that the words that come out of my mouth today, Father, are yours, that we speak by the Holy Spirit, just as we see in this text. And Father, that you would soften hearts and draw men to yourself. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 today, the title of today's sermon is, you're going to have to forgive me for this one, but remember the Shire. Thank you. I'll just get that out of the way. Remember the Shire. Can't help myself on this one. It really, I think, unlocked a lot for me and what to do with this particular passage. If you remember, uh, I just appeal to the movies because that's what most people are familiar with. You see Sam and Frodo up on the steep incline leaving Minas Morgul, heading into uh, Mount Doom soon. And all through their journey, the picture of the Shire has been this kind of rest and relief and rallying call for Frodo in particular as he bears the burden of the ring. When you hear this particular quote from Samwise Gamgee to encourage him in some of the darkest times that Frodo has, he says, you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields and eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? 
And it's this call back to home, to what was good, to what was safe. This thing that was a reminder of what we're fighting for, that pushed Frodo on, even despite the terrible burden he had. But it's interesting because throughout three books, the Shire is supposed to be essentially a pinnacle, right? Can we get back to the Shire? Can we make home safe again? Can I remember what it's like to be safe? But what happens when they do accomplish their mission and they do go back to the Shire? This really poignant shot in the film of the four of them with Sam and Frodo and Mary and Pippin sitting there with their drinks. And whereas Pippin used to be up and dancing on the tables and being the foolish, uh, most foolish one of them all, right? He sits there in quiet contemplation, all four of them, and they just look around. It's different. Something's different. Uh, certainly, there's a healthy dose of like some serious PTSD mixed into that. But that aside, this, this isn't what I remembered. This isn't, the Shire is great. It's beautiful. But they know better now. They know better now. They've seen more of the world. They've been to Rivendell. They've seen the elves. He wanted to see the elves. And he's seen Treebeard. And they've ridden in a tree that was walking as it went into battle. They stood on the fields at Gondor and have seen Minas Tirith, the white city. It's not like what we've seen, Gandalf. Things have changed. The Shire was amazing. And certainly it still is. But it's not like what we've seen. It's not like what we know is actually out there. As we look at our text today, we can't miss the previous verse. It helps us understand this shifting between what we've known before, that's good, that's certainly good, but now what we have come to see is true. In chapter 8, verse 13, it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, period. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He says obsolete twice. I'm talking about something that is fruitless. There's no function. There's no reason. There's, there's nothing left of it. And, and the best thing I can think of this besides, like, I don't know, Windows 98, is that when, when you think of obsolete and fruitlessness and, and the, the awkward tension that comes from trying to continue in it, I have this picture of, like, chess. Are you playing chess with someone and you get to the end and, and they checkmate you, Right? Game, checkmate, I concede. But then I go ahead and not concede and move my pawn, you know, another space. And they just look at me like, it's checkmate, like, it's over. It's like, I know, it's your turn, I'll move my pawn. I'm going to move my bishop here next, right? But why are we continuing? You have lost, it's over. The game is done, there's nothing to be continued, it's fruitless for you, there's no function left in here. If this old covenant is that game, it's done. It's over. The period has happened. But then he has this kind of transitory language that we've talked about in the already not yet. That's another sermon. But what is becoming obsolete is growing old. It's this geriatric type root language there. It's growing old. It's getting ready to vanish. Like we will all experience this of growing old and becoming to a point where we can't be as fruitful or we're becoming obsolete in our field or things are moving on. 
But we're getting ready to vanish away. He says that of the Old Covenant. Now that sounds pretty awful. You're taking this thing that was so great in their youth, right? Someone who was, who was at the height of their physique in their 20s, at the height of their field in their 30s and 40s. It's an amazing family, but now this person's old and they're obsolete. It's as if you're putting them down simply because of their age and forgetting all that they were. Our author knows that that might be the tendency as he speaks to these people who look back at the past and rightfully so, fondly. He just called the, the old covenant that which I grew up with, that which I have known, that which our people have known for all time that we know. And saying that it's obsolete, that it's fruitless, that there's no function, and it's vanishing away. Surely the least nostalgic person would still have trouble hearing that. And so he begins in chapter 9, verse 1 with this. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence that's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Now, I don't know if you know me well, but I think you can imagine that as I read this passage for the first time, a few weeks ago, uh, looking forward to this Sunday, I got to verse 5 and I'm like, I got the perfect thing. I'm going to lean forward and I'm going to be like, but we do have the time. I have an hour. <laughs> We're going to talk about this stuff, right? I got really excited to start unpacking what all these things look like and what they do and what their function was. It was like the author is trying to get on to chapter 10, but I, I have you. Like, here we go. There's a great warning from Calvin, though, that I think we want to respect today. He says this, Calvin issues a warning, since nothing is enough for inquisitive men, the apostle cuts out any opportunity for subtleties. In case too much discussion of these things might break the thread of his argument, philosophizing beyond reasonable bounds, as some do, is not only futile, but also dangerous. We must show discretion and moderation in case we desire to know more than it has pleased God to reveal. So, touche, Calvin, I'll, I'll back off a little bit. I don't want to lose the thread of the argument uh, for the sake of indulging my Old Testament desires. There is a degree to which we would want to understand these different things that he points out. For the, for the Jew that he's primarily speaking to in this letter, just the word lampstand all of a sudden means this big balloon of information. In the same way that I can say Shire, and if you have any experience with Lord of the Rings, it, it blossoms into all these mental pictures. Now, for us, we probably don't have that. You think lampstand, and you're like, I have one, and it flips on the light, right? I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what the meaning is. I don't know why it's glor glorious. Like, why does he bring it up? There's a degree to which, if we understood those things, it would help, for sure. But he says this. Uh, sorry, one, one commentator says this. He seems indeed to linger over these sacred treasures of the past as he's listing them out. He lists them out in some relative detail here. There's something majestic and attractive in this mosaic ordinance of worship. Now, Christians don't doubt that. Rather, when they acknowledge the beauty and meaning of the law, they understand the gospel better. When we understand the beauty and the meaning of these different items, 
we understand the picture of the gospel better. When we understand the law better, we understand the gospel better. So it's, it's certainly there's value to be found in discovering the meaning of all these component pieces. But that's not what he's interested in pressing on to. You'll notice that he lists just the inner room in the most holy place, just the tabernacle. He doesn't talk about the outer court at all. The outer court was actually where most of the people of the Israelites could actually do something. Eleven of the twelve tribes could never ever go inside the tabernacle. And so for the majority of Israel, they were only confined to the outer courts. And he doesn't say anything about it. I appreciate what A.W. Pink says about that. He says, Suffice it now to say that everything connected with the outer court was fulfilled by Christ in the days of his flesh. The very fact that it was the outer court, accessible to all the people and unroofed, at once denotes to us Christ here in the world, openly manifested before men. Its brazen altar spoke of the cross, where God publicly dealt with the sins of his people. Its fine linens, hangings, spoke of Christ meeting the claims of God's righteousness and holiness. Its 60 pillars tell of the strength and power of Christ, mighty to save. Its wash basin foreshadowed Christ cleansing his church and the washing of water by the word. Beautiful picture, right? We, can, we have all that on the outer court, but here's the problem. It's still the outer court. We look at the work of Christ even on the outside, and it's still the outer court. How do I get into the inner court? How do I take the stuff that Jesus did in the outer court and understand how I get into the inner court? Because the author of Hebrews is talking about the inner court, and I'm not allowed in there. And we think about this nostalgia for the past and saying, but that was so good. It's for our people. It set us apart from all the other nations of the world. This amazing thing that even happens in the outer court, that was special. How are you saying that it's becoming obsolete? How are we supposed to move on from that? How do I understand that this new thing you're saying that Jesus did in the outer court is somehow supposed to get me in? goes on to say this. It says, a new covenant has been inaugurated and the blessings connected with it so far excelled those which had belonged to the old one that nothing but blind prejudice and perverse unbelief could refuse the true light which now shone and prefer in its stead the dark shadows of a previous night. God never asks anybody to give up anything without proffering something far better in return. And they who despise his offer are the losers. It was so good. It was so glorious. God came to our people at the mountain. We saw the lightning. We heard the thunder. We saw Moses come down with with the tablets to our people after saving us from Egypt, after delivering us through the Red Sea. And we're just supposed to let that go? It's obsolete. How am I supposed to set that down? Through blind prejudice and perverse unbelief. He calls that time, that glory, darkness. As if you provide, prefer the, for the dark of night, the uncertainty, the scary things that linger over the brightness of pure day and all that is to be seen. And so for us, in order to really understand what we're trying to tackle, if we want to Remember the Shire and remember it appropriately. And remember what it's like to have been there, but see everything that has truly come. 
We need to understand why the Shire is not sufficient. We need to understand why the earthly covenant is not sufficient. There's three limitations of the old covenant. And a better covenant was necessary because the old one could offer only restricted access, partial cleansing, unlimited pardon. So first point for you today, how do I get to God? How do I get to God? This is the restricted access. I bring this question up at least every other time I preach. Uh, I recognize that. It's a fundamental question. It's an absolutely fundamental question. And I think our lack of recognition of it betrays our arrogance as a church, as a nation, and as people. The question of how do you get to God has to be answered by everyone. And it's a question that everyone asks, whether they believe in God or not. And so my question to you today is, how are you going to get to God? You. You, you. Answer the question. Unless you think you have the easy track, let's, let's, let's try this. What if you were an ancient Egyptian? What if you were one of Pharaoh's men? How do you get to God? But if you were the father, if you're an Egyptian father and your son perished overnight when the angel of death came, how do you get to God? But if you're a Canaanite in the land of Canaan, it's Joshua and the nation of Israel is flying through your land. How do you get to God? What's your answer? But if you're the Samaritan woman, how do you get to God? But if you're the Roman soldier, how do you get to God? I mean, if you're the average person in the history of the planet, and you have to answer that question because we all do, would the thunder and lightning this past night that we had, would that indicate that God was angry? Or, or the rain, does that indicate his pleasure? I mean, do you have to sacrifice for the rain? Do you have to dance for it? Do you have to pray for it? If you do, who do you sacrifice it to? Who do you pray to? Who do you dance for? Who mediates this relationship between you and this God that you are trying to know? How do you get to Him? The problem in many ways with the American church is that we are almost born knowing the answer. All of you have been sitting here just saying in your brain, Jesus, I Making a big deal about this, Pastor. It's, it's Jesus. Like, we know that. We're born knowing the answer, essentially. It's Jesus. It's our only hope in life and death. We're not alone, but we belong to God, right? Jesus. He is ours. The issue is that just because you know how to flip to the end of the book for the answer key in your math book does not mean that you understand anything about the equations, its purposes, or its methods of solution. And in fact, for many people, they flip to the end see that the answer is Jesus, and it's not a, suffic a sufficient solution because they've never actually looked at the problem to understand the nature of the unsolvable predicament that they're in. How are you going to get to God? Seriously, what's the plan? 
we have to understand that there is a real problem out there. And we cannot just take the solution because we know where it's found. Just as a relative who's a math teacher and she just posted, I think this morning or yesterday, picture of a test that she graded several years ago and it's a blank page. Like there's, n there's no pencil marks under any of the equations. And she says, I hate your style of teaching and your tests are so hard. My God. Because of you, I have to take this class again next year. This is what it says. So she takes that as a mark of approval. Ah. They have no idea how to actually deal with those equations. Not a clue. How are you going to get to God? So he reflects on the past and says, look, I understand it hurts for me to say that this is passing. I'm not saying that it didn't have value, that it's not glorious even, right? He says in verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. What a grace it is that God would provide a means for worship, appropriate worship at that. There is a means to engage him. He provides a way to come and to know him, right? That changes everything. It changed everything for Israel. There's a regulation for worship. There's a way for you to come and to worship. And it needs to be appropriate. And so, church, how do you prepare to come to worship? Do you come according to the regulations? Do you come prepared to hear from God? Or do you think that you're just hearing from man? Do you have an expectation when you come here on Sundays? Or are you just doing it because your parents make you? Or are you just doing it because you know that someone's going to call you and be like, where are you? Is it just because this is the Christian thing to do? Is it because you know this is the answer, but you don't really need to find out how to work the equation? Why do you come here? What is your expectation for what I'm doing right now? Do you realize that something is actually at stake? There's an article from Zion God a couple of weeks ago talking about really kind of blowing open the parable of the seed and the sower. And this picture that we have heard, right, is some of it goes into good soil and it grows. Some of it goes into thorny soil, it's choked out. Some of it goes on the path, it's burned up. Some of the seed gets scattered on the path and the birds come and they take it. And we're like, oh yeah, that was, that's unfortunate, that particular one, right? And he says, no, no, no. There's more to this picture here. And I think it's profound, this picture of these emissaries of Satan coming to pluck the word away. That's what they're taking. Not an opportunity, they're taking the word. He scatters the seed, the word. The seed is the word. It's not just food, it's not just sustenance for them, it's the word of God. They come and they snatch it and take it away. There are birds in the rafters right now seeking to swoop down and take the word from your ears. You recognize that something's at stake. John Piper in A Supremacy of God in Preaching says this of Edwards. He says, with Edwards' view of the reality of heaven and hell and the necessity of persevering in a life of holy affections and godliness, eternity was at stake every Sunday. That should change Saturday night for you. That should change Sunday mornings. Do you prepare beforehand? Do you listen well? What standards do you have for, for us, the preachers? Are they, are they your standards or are they God's? There are certainly standards. Do you have the right ones? 
You see, these regulations for worship were not something that the Israelite could just do at the last minute. They take consideration. It takes orienting your life around it, this earthly place of holiness. These regulations were given to them, this earthly place of holiness. They oriented their entire nation around that tent. People want, for as long as I've been in church, and especially in ministry, want to avoid living their lives at church, right? I'm just, I'm there every time the doors are open. I just don't feel like I have much life outside the church. I used to try to protect against this. We're like, all right, we need to make sure that, you know, we're not all about just the church. It's not the church. It's more than a building, right? We did all that fun stuff in church growth movement. But my question is like, what's it keeping you from? If if your life is the church, what are we keeping you from? What are you longing to go do? What are you missing out on? Because that would be my natural question. What is the church keeping you from? It's not that I want you here all the time in this building. It's that I want you oriented around this holy place of worship. Now, in our case, it's no longer a tent. but The ministry of the church of the living stones that are next to you. Is it such a danger that we would encourage you to spend time with the other living stones of whom you are built upon? Or that we might seek to live a life together as a body of whom we have been joined together? This thinking still pops up in my head. I'm with the staff guys all the time, and then like we do an extra thing on the weekend. I'm like, I think Pastor Jeff's getting tired of me. I think it's, I think it's a little too much. We need some space. Meanwhile, one of us is the shoulder, and the other is the arm joint, right? Or, or the this bone. Jeff will tell you that one. Like, of course we're together all the time. That's how the body works. It's supposed to be that way. It's okay. What is your life oriented around? What are we keeping you from right now? What are you trying to think about because tomorrow is coming? What are we keeping you from? The problem is is that we don't always want access to God. We want access to everything else. Or we want to make ourselves God. And the church keeps us from that. Because the danger is, is that we all need access to God. We all want it. We all need it. So when you come on Sunday, do you recognize your need? Or do you recognize God's provision? God has seed to scatter. He has bread to give. Do you see your need? And do you understand how God has provided for it? We skip down to verse 6. He says, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, So let's continue our thought experiment, right? You're not an Egyptian or a Canaanite. You're a good Hebrew family, all right? You prepare for worship faithfully. You bring your sacrifice to the tabernacle. And you're done. You will never go inside. Not one day of your life. Why? Well, because you're a Benjamite. You're not a Levite. And you're not a priest of Levi. So you never go inside. Never. It won't happen your entire life. There's no initiation, right? There's no final, right? Like there's, you're not going inside the tabernacle. What if you never got to come inside here? What if, what if you had to leave your sacrifice, not at the altar, but like on the steps? And you just trust that the Levites are going to come and do their job 
in the tent. You should trust that, right? You can trust that the high priest will then faithfully discharge his duties in the holies of holies, right? I would say, I would wager that most of us would have a, a hard time with that. Many people would have a hard time with that. They, they can't trust their elders as it is with stuff that they know about, let alone things that they don't know. And they're just supposed to leave all of the payment and sacrifice outside of a place where they can witness it and see it and experience it? I'm supposed to be okay with that? And I don't get to experience the smoke that's inside and, and see the mercy seat and see the blood actually applied? I don't get to see that? And I'm just supposed to trust. I'm just supposed to have faith, right? What access do you have to God? The outer court, that's it. But what a grace still, right? That you have the outer court, because who doesn't? The Egyptian. The Canaanite. The question still remains, how do I get to God? How do I get that access? And the truth is, there's no answer to this question for mankind. There's no answer for it. You can't. Not in the earthly covenant. You don't have an answer. So what's your plan? How are you going to get to God? There's no chance in the earthly covenant. His heavenly covenant says, they shall not teach one another, saying, know the Lord. Why? They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That's access to know God. That's what he's saying is better. But I mean, the old one's great too, right? The old one's great too. How do I get to God? Second thing I want you to see is, how do I get rid of this burden? How do I get rid of this burden? This is the partial cleansing. Partial cleansing. And in verse 7 through, uh, through 9, and not without taking blood, and he goes into the Holy of Holies once per year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So, how do I get rid of this burden? What am I talking about? Well, he takes in blood for himself, right? High priest has to take blood for himself into the Holy of Holies because he's, as we've seen, an incomplete mediator, right? He's not the better mediator. We need Jesus as our high priest. But this high priest goes in and has to offer blood for himself. But then he offers blood for the people. And why does he do that? Our text says because of the unintentional sins of the people. A better way to say this would be the sins committed in ignorance. The sins committed in ignorance. Now this most definitely is a jab at these people, okay? As he's writing to these Jews, this is a shot. The sins committed in ignorance. This is most definitely a jab. How do I know that? Well, for one, the Day of Atonement was not just for the unintentional sins. It was for all the sins of the people. He, it's not that he has it wrong, okay? 
there's something else earlier that he shifts to. He knows what he's talking about, all right? He knows what he's talking about, but he says it this way. He's saying that this is for sins committed in ignorance. He's calling them ignorant. He's saying you're still in your ignorance. The regulations were given, right? Verse 1. The law was made known to them. We've seen that in the past weeks. And so what happens? You still ignorantly broke it all. You still did it. This great thing that you're looking back to, the Shire, right? As you look back at the Old Covenant, saying, He gave us regulations for worship. He gave us the Decalogue. He met us on the mountain. And we still blew it. Because we're ignorant. He gave us everything we needed to know. And we still sin because we're ignorant. And so I think it becomes really important for us to recognize chapter 8, verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. All right, now, now we've got the law, we broke it, ignorantly and otherwise. And since we broke it, he's showing us no concern. This is not looking great. This is not looking great. Because my sins demand death. Oh no. Now what? Now I have a time out of covenant. I don't have a God who's showing concern for me. And I have this burden I have to get rid of. And he's saying that they can remain ignorant as they reach back to this old table. And so it becomes important for Christians to recognize that gospel is good news to the ignorant. News is supposed to be action happening now to inform you of what's going on, of which you were previously ignorant. You get on right now and look at the news and they're going to tell you about something that's happening in a place that you probably shouldn't care about. That is news to you because you were previously ignorant to the goings-ons, right? The gospel is good news to the ignorant. But the challenge is, is do we remain ignorant? Are we doing what the people are doing that he's talking about in Hebrews? Do you remain ignorant? <coughs> there is an online personality that you should get to know. His name is Chocolate Knox, and that should be enough for you. Uh, he was talking on a podcast recently about how he uh, and his family worked through Westminster Confession and Catechism, working through these statements of faith. And he says that he's finding ways that he's sinning against his family that he didn't realize. He was sinning against them and, and, and just missing, missing his, some of his responsibilities, doing other things that he thought were okay and are not. And as he discovers the Word and understands better the law of God, he's able to confess those things to them and live in repentance towards them. He does this by fixing his ignorance, by understanding the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> so here the author is saying that despite having exclusivity, right? You are a chosen nation. You're the only one. Exclusivity and availability. He has given the way the regulations of worship. You are remaining ignorant. He's not speaking ill of the Israelites. It's not his intention. He's speaking ill of the Jewish holdouts, the ones reading his letter, 
who are holding out. Do you want to go back to ignorance, he's saying. And so, as we continue exploring this, we recognize that this offering is made, right? This, this offering is made, but it's not, it's not doing the work. You'd think that once the offering was made, the tabernacle would go away because the sins are paid for, right? If sin demands death and the sacrifice is to pay for that, then once it's done, we shouldn't need the tabernacle anymore. But you go with your bull, with your goat, and it's sacrificed with your hand on top of it as you identify with it, and the scapegoat goes off into the wilderness so that God remembers the sin no more. And what? The tabernacle remains. You have to do it again. Didn't it take the burden? Can we go inside now that the sacrifice has been made? Can I get access to God? Can I go inside? No. The Holy Spirit then and now is saying that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. The tabernacle is still standing. The problem is, is that yes, goat, dead, offered, more sins will be committed. The ones before are only temporarily covered. Whereas in the heavenly covenant, there will be mercy towards their iniquities and he will remember their sins no more. These are not fully paid for yet. We're not taking the tent down yet. It's not over. We're not done paying for these sins. Because the real problem, as we have seen in other sermons, is that the problem is not purely external, it's internal with our hearts and our minds. Commentator said this, the Old Covenant did all that it could possibly do, but it could not bring help to man at a point where it was needed most desperately in his conscience. All the sacrifices and gifts in the world could not ease the most seriously disturbed part of man's inner life. You see this in the Pilgrim's Progress of Christian. He says, that's exactly what I want to do, to be rid of this heavy burden. But I can't get rid of it on my own. And I don't know of any man in our country who can take it off my shoulders. So I'm headed in this direction, as I told you, for that very purpose, to get rid of my burden. And men go to the farthest lengths to relieve themselves of their burdens, right? For every one thing that we try, we actually just end up taking that thing and adding it to the burden itself. Whether it's a turn to pleasure, whether it's hours on the TV, whether we're lost in food or pornography or mindless scrolling on our phones, and even hobbies, just turn to pleasure. Something to distract us from the burden that's on our back. Something to solve the tension that we feel that's weighing down on us. Whether we turn to family, right? Whether we glory in our children to an extent that's supposed to relieve us of the burden that's on our back to distract us from what's going on into our wife or into our husband. We lean into parents. For those of us that still have children in the home, we need to ask the question of what some of our older saints are experiencing. What will an empty home be like for you? When the children are gone and you've put all of your time into distracting yourself with them, what will an empty home be like? When we turn to career and status, we turn to money, we turn to promotions, we turn to the next project, the next thing. And I think from at least my life, often I fall into this particular phrase, the next, just after. 
What's I will as soon as it, as soon as it, as soon as as soon as I get as soon as this, and our lives just become a perpetual next. We never live here now, understanding what's going on. We turn to anything and everything to help distract us from what is on our back. In Pilgrim's Progress, they talk about their journey and how uh, Apollyon has crafted this city in this one spot that he noticed that all pilgrims have to travel through. He sees it. This is a perfect place for this. He says, Perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made that their way to the city lay through this town, they set up a fair, vanity fair. A fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity and that it should last all the year long. Therefore at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here are to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swears, and that of a blood-red color. Anything and everything can distract you from the burden that's on your back. Will you remain in ignorance? Because none of these things will take the burden. It just distracts you from it. It's still there on your shoulders, weighing you down. How will you take it off? Well, you've got to answer the question. The story continues with Faithful and Christian. They go on trial. And Faithful's up first. And they bring up a witness against Faithful to accuse him, and his name is Superstition. And he says this, I heard him, Faithful, say that our religion was not, and such by which a man could by no means please God. Which if you say this, my Lord, your Lordship very well knows what necessarily it has to follow, to wit, that we still do worship in vain, and are still in our sins, and finally shall be damned. And that's what I've heard him say. Faithful says that this religion of vanity, all these other things that you are chasing, whether it's children, whether it's wives, whether it's places, trades, delights, pleasures, kingdoms, whatever it is, if you continue in that, there's no sacrifice for your sins and you will finally be damned. And Vanity Fair wants nothing to do with that, right? And so the judge accuses him guilty. You are guilty for decrying our religion but to be charitable, we'll let you speak for yourself. He responds to his accuser. To your charge, Mr. Superstition, I say only this, that in the worship of God, there is required a divine faith, but there can be no divine faith without a divine revelation of the will of God. Therefore, whatever is thrust into the worship of God that's not agreeable to divine revelation cannot be done but by a human faith, which faith will not be profitable to eternal life. You can take whatever man-made thing you want and try to shove it in that hole and it is not going to work. It's not fitting as we saw a couple weeks ago. 
It's not fitting. You'll still have your burden. You might be distracted for a time, but you still have it. I don't know. You're sitting there thinking, no, no, I'm not ignorant, Pastor. I, I know better, right? I flipped to the end of the book. Jesus, I got it. I won't just pick something else. I'm not that stupid. It's not, not that hard. I get it. Like, don't do the obvious stuff. Okay, that's fair. Here's the problem. It's not that simple. You're not just walking into Las Vegas with all of its bright lights and be like, no, I'm not dumb. I'm not going to the place there. That's not your life. That's not what tomorrow looks like. That's not what you on your computer looks like. And the Art of War by Sun Tzu says this, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, well, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. This picture of recognizing that, do you really know yourself? Do you really know who you are? Do you really know what you're susceptible to? Do you really know how the enemy is coming after you? Do you know yourself? Do you know the enemy? Screwtape says this to Wormwood in Screwtape Letters. The trouble with the patient's new set is that it is merely Christian. It would be much better if the woman and her family were Christians with a special interest, like faith healing or vegetarianism. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, devils should exploit the human tendency to make faith into a fad. They should corrupt a healthy desire for change into an obsession for absolute novelty. This helps diminish pleasure and at the same time increases desire, unifies the new, old, new and old with rhythm, the rhythm of the seasons of youth, age, death, and birth. The enemy, that would be God in this case, wants men to ask simple questions. Is it virtuous? Is it possible? But hell wants men to worry about whether a proposal is novel, whether it fits the spirit of the times, Humans can't know the future, but they distract themselves trying to predict it. This opens up a space for us devils to enter their lives and bend human actions to hell's desires. And so knowing the enemy in that case and knowing my proclivity for being ignorant, orienting yourself around the tabernacle doesn't sound so bad anymore to me. What do I know? Surely you know how to take your burden off on your own. And I'm sure you will one day, right? After this next thing. After you're done with everything else, you'll finally take it off. How do I take this burden off? Finally, how do I avoid this wrath? How do I avoid this wrath? This would be the limited pardon. Verse 9 says this, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So we need to recognize that not only can it not fully cleanse, right, and specifically with an emphasis on ignorant sins, unintentional ignorant sins, but it cannot perfect the conscience. Why? Because we know that we have willfully sinned as well. Or at least most of us know that. 
The willful sin is an entirely different issue, but like all sin, it still demands death. One commentator said this, man was seriously troubled by the fact that he had sinned not only inadvertently, not only accidentally, ignorantly, through carelessness or ignorance, but consciously and rebelliously. What could the law do about people like us who are not even stray sheep or wandering prodigals merely? We are rebels taken up with weapons in our hands. What will the law do for that? You see, the king will not suffer this rebellion. Wrath will come down. Christian goes on to say, A burden lies heavily upon me. He took a deep breath and let it out slowly. You see, I've learned that our city will be burned with fire from heaven. I'm afraid we are all doomed. Even you, my sweet children. Unless I can find some way of escape. But I haven't found any way. How will you escape this wrath? What's your plan? What are you going to do? Do you know that wrath is coming? That's one of the concerns I have with what Christian says. I've learned that our city will be burned with fire from heaven because the Scriptures tell us that all men already know this. (laughs) If I can critique John Bunyan. The Egyptian would know wrath was coming. The Canaanite would know wrath was coming. You know wrath is coming. What's your plan? I know you know this because of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. You can't say you didn't know. So that's one of your options. So now answer the question. How will you escape this wrath? You can't say you didn't know. You just suppress the truth. How do we suppress the truth? Well, will you blame others? In escaping the wrath, will you blame others? Will you, will you say to God at the judgment seat and, and say, you don't understand how they treated me. You, you don't understand what happened to me. My wife, she never respected me. My husband, he didn't love me. My children, they just they wouldn't listen. You don't understand. My boss was terrible. My pastors, weren't, they weren't there for me. You don't understand, God. You don't know how they treated me. Will you blame circumstances? You stand before Him and explain to Him now the economy just wrecked all of your provision for your family about how politics were just absolutely pitted against us. About how your health just was not great and it made things really difficult. Or even that you were in pain all the time. Or that your disabilities just changed, you know, the circumstances and the expectation. You know how easy it is for me to blame others for my hearing disability? To not love them fully by trying harder to listen, to not love them fully by giving them my attention, to just blowing off social situations because it's a lot of work to hear. 
to thinking that other people don't love me because they're not willing to speak up or move their stupid hand from in front of their lips so that I can actually see what they're saying. Like, that's a real thing for me. I can blame others. I can blame circumstances. Will you blame God? Frankly, I just don't like that you're sovereign. I don't really care for the things that you've done here. I don't, I don't understand how you could do this. And so, the wrath's not for me. It's for you. It's your fault. What will you say to him who sits on the throne when in 1 Corinthians 3.13 says each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And he says, what have you done? How are you going to answer him? We can test this. That's probably my favorite part about this last point. We can test this one. How do you treat someone who sinned against you? When someone sins against you, how do you treat them? What do they blame? <laughs> when they've sinned against you, what do they blame? What do you, the one sinned against, hold against them? How hard is it to earn your forgiveness? What happens when your kid sins against you? How do you treat them? Uh, Pastor Matt used this in the class earlier before service from Doug Wilson. He says a, a disciplined kid is a confessed and forgiven kid. Life is much more enjoyable for him. You live your life in such a way that forgiveness is available. That wrath that's due against this sin can be covered over and passed out. You have the opportunity to have a relationship where you're not the God of wrath? Is there an opportunity for your child to get out from under your wrath? We often treat others horizontally the way we believe we are treated vertically. In every counseling case I've seen in my life, this is at play. The way that you think God treats you is the way that you will treat others. Every time. And so for this one, if your life is full of wrath, you haven't found an answer for this yet. The wrath hangs in heaven over you. Even the blood that was put on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, seven times it was put on there for the priest. Seven times it was put on there for the nation. And it still did not deal with the wrath of God. The wrath hangs in heaven over the sinner and it will come with fire. And so how are you going to perfect your conscience? If you hear my voice right now, how are you going to perfect your conscience? What is your plan? One day you will die and you better have an answer for all these. The old earthly covenant was great. Shire was beautiful. It did so much for Israel, and it was sheer grace from God. Absolutely. But it was only temporary. And it's obsolete. And it's growing old, and it's disappearing. And so what will be your answer? 
This should be as clear as day at this point. The temple's not even there anymore. You can't do it at all. How will you answer these questions? Samwise says this later in the book when he's struggling, but he still has a, a bit of hope. How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Are you still holding on to these darkness, these shadows in your life? If you see that he's trying to bring the new daylight into your life, how will you answer these questions? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time to consider the big question in life. What do we do with you? Father, you have made right demands on our life. You're king. You're creator. You have a claim over everything. And Father, even with the, even with the play-by-play, the rule book, the step-by-step instructions on how to live a life that's honoring to you, we still lose it. Father, these questions are hard. They're real questions. They're real problems. But Father, if we are not trusting in your Son, are still hanging over us today. Father, the people that we love in our life, our friends, our co-workers, the people around us, they have to answer this question. Father, I pray that if there are believers here today, they would reconcile with these again and recognize that we hold the answer. Father, for those who here, that are here and have not answered these questions, yet know the answer is Jesus, Father, I pray that you would help them actually see what it's like to enter into the Holy of Holies. Father, have them talk to a pastor, to anyone in this room that knows the answer. But otherwise, these questions linger on, and they will until you return, when all men truly stop suppressing the truth and see you for what you are. Father, we know better. Let us live a life oriented around the heavenly worship place. Father, you've made a way. Help us see that and trust it. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.